In this lecture, Professor Saiful Islam from the Department of Chemistry at the University of Bath describes research into new materials behind the clean energy technologies that could help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So, Professor Islam, can I invite you to present your inaugural lecture, Clean Energy Materials, Crystal Gazing on the Atomic Scale. First of all, I have to thank uh, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for that kind introduction. And secondly, I'd like to thank all of you for coming. It's quite an amazing crowd tonight. I was quite nervous about this lecture, as many of you know. I think I'm even more nervous now. <laughs> uh, I was actually nervous for a different reason. It's really, I'm familiar with giving conference lectures. I'd probably give that quite easily. But for a general audience, it's much of a challenge. Um, I've got professors in chemistry. I've got non-scientist friends here, and I've got my eight-year-old uh, niece here as well. So I asked Sheila, who organised, and I have to thank Sheila for all the organisation. I said, Sheila, what shall I talk about? And she said, about 50 minutes. <laughs> so, so, for the, so, for the next, so for the next 49 minutes, I'm going to talk about clean energy materials, crystal gazing on the atomic scale. And... Um, if you've been gazing at that, and keen observers will know that actually that crystal is not perfect. So there are some imperfections, and more on that later. Um, with a general lecture like this one, um, where do I begin? So I looked around, and I saw inspiration in Lewis Carroll in his Alice Adventures in Wonderland. And there are some instructions to the, the rabbit, the very confused white rabbit. And the instructions are begin at the beginning, go until the end, then stop. So that's my kind of philosophy behind this lecture. So I'll stop right at the end. Uh, so the menu. Uh, I'm going to try and give you a flavour. I think in this time I can't cover all the, area of the research I've covered in the last 23, 24 years, but I'm going to give you a flavour, and hopefully it'll be a, a decent flavour. And, and with any flavour, it's tonight's menu. It starts off with a, a short starter about clean energy, some issues that I think some of us are all familiar with in the media. The second starter is about crystals. Um, some of you are familiar with crystals, some of you aren't. So I'm going to talk about, about crystals, how we gaze at them using very powerful modelling techniques. And then as the first main course, I'm going to talk about gazing at fuel cell materials. Um, and they're as this example shows, have been developed for cars and also for homes. The second area, or the last of the um, main courses, is a dessert, lithium-ion batteries. And I think we're all familiar with lithium-ion batteries in revolutionising portable electronics. And this is probably one of the best examples, love them or loathe them, the mobile phone is with us. And in true cinema or theatre style, I hope you've turned yours off. <laughs> right, so the first starter, clean energy. Um, well, I think we know that there is an energy challenge, and I think it's one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century, and that is that the demand for energy is growing and it's increasing. And with that, the use of fossil fuels is increasing as well. And the problem there is that you've got massive CO2 emissions, which is a greenhouse gas. So you can't pick up a newspaper without the words global warming coming up and potential climate change. So it's a very, very hot topic, um, both literally and metaphorically, but also it's a very hot potato for politicians to deal with. So are there alternatives? Um, there are some possible cleaner, sustainable alternatives to try and reduce that large carbon footprint that you see there. And again, these are the ones that you would have seen in the media. You've got solar cells, you've got wind power, you've got biodiesel wave power, all bringing power to the people. And also we can do our bit with uh, energy-saving light bulbs, turning the thermostat down, um, perhaps avoiding dirty 4x4s. Uh, but it's clear that there's going to be a, a very diverse energy mix in the future. Um, they may not dominate in some places, but there will be 
a diverse energy mix. Um, perhaps an untapped source, but closer to home, is the Roman baths and thermal energy. So if all else fails, we've got this in Bath. Um, what am I focused on? I'm focused on two areas that the, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor mentioned, and that's fuel cells, and I'll explain what they are uh, a bit later on, but in terms of successful applications, they've been used as trials around the capitals of Europe, including London, and this is one of the London examples of a, a zero-emission bus. They've been used uh, as trials within um, homes as combined heat and power, and this is the area that I'm going to focus in on later on. The second topic of interest to me is lithium-ion batteries. And as I mentioned, in terms of the portable revolution, they're used in laptops. But the real challenge is, can we scale them up to be used in hybrid electric cars? The current hybrid electric car, for example, this successful Toyota Prius, uses a conventional battery, uh, a nickel metal hydride. But uh, there are problems with that, and it would be nice to try and replace that with lithium. So I'll be talking about some new materials there. So um, in terms of philosophy of the research, I believe in both these technologies that chemistry is key. In fact, chemistry is key in developing new crystalline materials for any major advances. And so I've, I've dubbed this chemical solutions. And hopefully I'll um, demonstrate that where chemistry is playing an important role. Um, I'll end this starter with a, a, a nice quote. Um, it's about the possible low-carbon future. There are oil reserves there. But this quote is from um, an oil minister, OPEC oil minister from the 1970s oil crisis, and that's Sheikh Zaki Yamani. And some of you may have seen this quote before. The Stone Age did not end because of the lack of stone. So hopefully we can find alternatives to oil, even though if oil is still around us. So the second of my starters is crystal gazing. What do I mean by crystal gazing? Not the new age variety. Um, well, crystalline solids. Uh, we live in a, um, a crystal world. If you look at the minerals or rocks in the earth, they're dominated by crystalline materials. Uh, a more domestic crystal is sodium chloride or salt, and these are some magnified crystals, some beautiful cubic crystals. But as with everything, everything is made of atoms. And some of those atoms are charged. They lose or gain electrons. And those charged ions or atoms are what they look like on the atomic scale. So again, your 3D glasses on. Um, this is similar to your first image, but this one is a perfect crystal structure. I found with, for the best effect as you stare a while and actually move your head to side to side. You can see the kind of 3D effect much better. But actually, I should get my stick. This always works better. So you can see that within the structure, you've got this kind of um, ions. The larger ions are chloride. The smaller ions are sodium. But what's, the bit I want to get across to you is that it's a very regular lattice. All crystalline materials of this type have a very regular repeating unit. And that repeating unit is repeated just like a pattern in a wallpaper. But this is a bit of a misleading uh, representation. It's got them as balls and sticks, the sticks representing the bonding. But actually, they are close-packed, a bit like oranges are. So if you see a stack of oranges, you'll see them close packed. And if you look at them carefully, they actually form a crystal lattice. Um, so next time you go to the grocers, you'll be able to see that. Although I have to say, now going to large supermarkets, you don't see this at all because they're just packaged in plastic bags. But the old-style greengrocers, you can see nice stacking just like crystals. Um, as in much in life, uh, size is important. And uh, in this case, I'm referring to nano. And it's believed in many scientific circles that nano means to be funded. Uh, um, but it's true definition. It's true definition to do with size. And the size is, if you relate it to a meter, it's 10 to the minus 8 meters. And that's that number there. So you can see it's tiny. And on this 
sodium chloride model, you can see the, the chloride ions are these large apples, the sodium ions are the small oranges. But if you look at one diagonal, that's roughly one nanometer. It might be just a bit less than that. That's roughly one nanometer. And that's one millionth the thickness of human hair. So that's the concept of atoms, and that's the concept of size, the nanoscale. Another important property of solids is that they contain defects. Um, defects implies that they shouldn't be there, but actually they're, by, they're there by nature. They're actually imperfections. And I show this beautiful painting by Salvador Dali because it merges the picture of uh, a woman with a sort of a crystal lattice. In fact, it's just a, a bunch of spheres. But there's a lovely quote from Sean Corrish in Dublin, one of the first meetings I went to, and he said that solids are like people, imperfect. And it's the defects that make them, and us, I suppose, unique and interesting. Um, of course, some people have more defects than others. Uh, I know I've got quite a few. Um, some would say estate agents or the current US president, but I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, but that's the concept of defects. Defects, as I said, appear by nature. And the reason I bring up defects is that they're crucial to a lot of properties of these crystals. And this is one of the best examples, and it comes from my postdoc days in New York when I worked for Eastman Kodak. Um, of course, uh, the dirty word you don't mention now to Kodak is digital. Uh, but it does have the, the, one of the best examples of defect chemistry. This is silver chloride. It has the same structure as sodium chloride, the one that you've been gazing at. This is a slice through the structure, so you can only see a two-dimensional representation. The silver ions in grey and the, uh, the green ions are chloride again. But it shows two very important defects. One, that a silver ion is missing, and that is a vacancy, and it's moved to a site that's not normally occupied. So if you remember in that, uh, um, that gazing figure, it's actually at the centre there, and that is called an interstitial. So why is that... Why is that important? Well, those silver interstitial defects are crucial to photography. Without those defects, you wouldn't have photography. Basically, under a photochemical reaction, those silver defects cluster to form your silver negative image. Um, there's a, a nice story when I was there, and this is classic public relations. Uh, they were writing a general article about scientists working on photography. And in the article, they said that scientists are working very hard to get rid of defects in these silver halides, for not realizing that defects were essential. Um, so back with your 3D glasses. And again, this is the image in my title slide. So for those keen observers, you'll see that the two defects... In fact, hands up who spotted those defects. Oh, not that many. Uh, so that's the silver iron vacancy. There's the silver iron interstitial. In fact, the best way is always with the pointer. So if you can see here, if you move your head around, it's a really good effect there. And then that's the interstitial there. So you can see that interstitial is in the middle of that cube, but it shouldn't be there. I should stress that most ions in that lattice are not defects. That interstitial silver is only about 1 in 200. Okay, it's only 1 in 200. Most of the lattice is still perfect. So why this line at the bottom? Well, this line at the bottom reminds me that you can't look at these defects very easily by experiment alone. And partly because there aren't many of them, but partly because you're looking at very small uh, defects or uh, um, features at the atomic scale. So this is why modelling is crucial. We can search for those needles in a crystalline haystack. So one final type of defect before I leave this section, and that's to do with dirty crystals. And what I mean by dirty crystals are these beautiful gemstones or minerals. These actually contain impurities. Um, I put up the word dopant because I'm going to bring that up later on. Dopant is when you deliberately add an impurity. But in this case, those impurities occur in nature. So most minerals are coloured and these are just cut into beautiful gemstones. Um, some of you may know that this week um, is the birth date and uh, the day that old, the great writer William Shakespeare uh, died. He was born, apparently, there's a lot of debate, 
apparently born on 23rd April 1564, uh, that's St. George's Day, and then died the same day, which is more established, 1616, 52 years later. But most of you won't know that actually he was actually quite up on defect solid-state chemistry. Um, I found this great quote from Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, I have to thank David Cunliffe-Jones for this. Um, And it relates to Demetrius when he wakes up and he sees Helen for the first time and he sees her beautiful eyes. And he says, to what shall I compare thine eye? Crystal is muddy. So obviously Shakespeare is saying is that compared to her beautiful eyes, uh, crystals have a lot of impurities. So he was up on his defect chemistry. So I'd like to honour the great writer this week. So that was last Monday. Right, so that was the second of the uh, starters. But let me just finish off with a a bit of a brief aside. Well, not aside, it's key. Um, And that's to do with computer modelling. When people ask me what I do at dinner parties, rather than say I'm a chemist, I usually say I model. And... uh, (laughs) Get, at least it doesn't kill the conversation. If I said chemistry, chemistry, they usually go off and get a drink somewhere else. If I, uh, but this was a lovely model made by Emma and Julia when I left Surrey as a going away present. And I have to apologise to them because I haven't treated it well. There's, a, there's actually a defect here. This iron has come down. But what it says here is not all chemists wear white coats. They say this because I kept using this line in my lectures and I've used it again here. So, and not all chemists wear white coats. And what I mean by that is that we do computer modelling rather than modelling down the catwalk. And um, what computer modelling is about is trying to represent those crystals by mathematical models. So the, the forces within a crystal can be very strong or weak forces. In this case, very strong ionic forces between sodium and chloride. That's just a schematic through the structure. So those forces can be represented, that nature's glue can be represented by a mathematical model. What computers are are good at doing are very boring things, like just doing computations and computations, so basic number crunching. And for a very large, complex system, you, 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 you tend to use very large supercomputers. So what's the starting point? Well, we try and mimic, using those mathematical models, we try and mimic crystal structures, and I will come back to these structures later on, so I won't describe them in detail now. This is the proskite structure, and this is the appetite, and I'd like to thank Emma again. This was used in the the poster for the lecture. So our starting point is how do you um, model the structure, which we do by these interatomic potentials or these mathematical models, and we try and reproduce the experimental structure. And that experimental structure has been determined by structural techniques. And we try and do that to within 1%. And largely, we do do that for quite complex materials. And a good analogy here is the iconic photo of uh, James Watson and Francis Crick. This is a photo from Cambridge in 1953, when they, using retort stands and clamps, they built up the double helix model of the molecule of life, DNA. And... uh, Subsequently, they got the Nobel Prize for that um, uh, discovery. But also, I show this for another reason. It shows you that the importance of curiosity-driven research, fundamental research, is important for development and pushing back science, which can lead to applications. But without that fundamental research, you're not really advancing knowledge. Nowadays, you can do that on a computer within seconds. You can build up those complex DNA structures. So that's an example where computer modelling is used in the biological field. So why am I using it? Well, as I said, experiment might find it difficult to look at some of these properties on the atomic scale, defects. But the next thing is those defects are not stationary. They can move. So we'll be looking at iron transport or iron conduction. And that's very important for the two applications I'm going to talk about, fuel cells and lithium batteries. Um, I've mentioned defects already a vacancy. I'm going to talk about um, a dopant or impurity deliberately added, and you can, we can look at that. And lastly, in terms of surfaces or nanocrystalline behavior, we can model the surface of these crystals. So what's the aim of modeling? Well, as I mentioned about fundamental research, the first starting point is really to get a fundamental understanding of these materials. Through that, you can get greater insight and hopefully 
with that greater insight, you can begin to design new materials. And probably the most challenging aim of modelling is can it be predictive? Can you actually predict new properties? So really, I wanted to stress that fundamental science is key in underpinning a lot of applications and technology. So what is my philosophy? Well, it's very much a complementary philosophy. Um, in scientific jar jargon, you say multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. I think scientific marriage sounds a bit better. Uh, basically, it's combining computational chemistry with experimental techniques. Uh, perhaps, perhaps not as intimate as Rodin's The Kiss, but can be just as long-lasting. Uh, but like any marriage, there are, there are disagreements. And, but generally, through the scientific method and debate, you get to a consensus and you get to an agreement on various issues. So it's very much a combined approach. So let me move on to um, the first main course, and that's to do with fuel cell materials. So a bit of history first, and this relates to one of my scientific heroes, that's Michael Faraday, who I've dubbed the godfather of iron conductors. This is a picture of the old 20-pound note. We can see Michael Faraday, but also Michael Faraday lecturing in the, the Royal Institution, and um, he was noted for his public lectures. Um, a personal view, I'd, I'd rather have Faraday than Elgar or Adam Freemarket Smith. Uh, on the 20-pound note, but that's my view. Um, why am I talking about it? Well, he made tremendous contributions to a whole range of different areas of chemistry and physics, or natural philosophy as it was then. But in, in my area, in this area of electrochemistry, in his diary in 1835, uh, his diaries weren't trivial diaries, uh, he noted that, that materials, when sought for, would conduct electricity in the solid state. And he observed this in various number of systems. I think silver sulfide was one of the first systems. And this was really a forerunner to the whole field of iron conduction in solids. So he observed that. So how does that relate to what I'm going to talk about? Well, I'm going to talk about something called the solid oxide fuel cell. So first I'll explain what a fuel cell is. Well, a fuel cell is what I call an electrochemical sandwich. Uh, like a sandwich, you have these bread slices, which are the electrodes here in this kind of grey colour. And like any sandwich, you have uh, meat or cheese, if you're vegetarian, uh, filling between the two electrodes. In this case, it's a solid oxide iron conductor. So that's very important. That's where the fast iron conduction occurs. Um, electrochemistry suggests that there's um, a chemical reaction. And if there is, in this case, a chemical reaction occurs which produces very efficiently electrical energy. And this is a very simple reaction, which suits me. Uh, the, the reaction inv involves oxygen, which is right on the right, and it comes, it's split to form oxygen ions, O2 minus. You have very fast iron conduction across that iron conductor, that meat filling, and just like any sandwich, you need a good filling. And what you have there is it reacts with Hydrogen, in this case, is the fuel. So the fuel is clean. It could be hydrogen-rich like methanol, but the byproduct is water, and you can't get any cleaner than that. Um, at that point, it reminds me I was going to have some water, the byproduct. Um, also, um, I wasn't sure if the university could stretch to a glamorous assistant, so I've asked um, Craig Fisher from the group, and he's going to show you some animation on the fuel cell while I have some fuel cell byproduct. So in this movie, you're going to see the fuel cell. So again, oxygen on the right, splitting, and you get this fast oxide ion conduction. Electrons are released, and you can see the Mickey Mouse molecules or the water coming off as the byproduct. So you can use uh, methanol as well. The reaction is a bit different. But what I wanted to stress is that there's very fast ion conduction across that Electrolyte, And this is sort of schematic of a modelling result. It's not a real modelling result, but shows you the principle behind the iron conduction. Thanks, Craig. Round of applause for Craig. <laughs> so I think the next slide was going to remind me. Yes. Right, so there are 
a number of different fuel cell types, but I'm going to talk about one in particular, but I'll mention two. The first one, which is the one I've just described, has the electrolyte, the ion conductor, as a solid oxide, a ceramic oxide, and that's crystalline. And this has potential use within homes or even a backup generator for hospitals. Uh, But there is a problem, and the problem is that you need very high temperatures for that iron conduction. The second type, the more sexy end, which I don't work on, is the the polymer fuel cells, and these are used within that uh, the buses I showed at the beginning, but also I think you, hopefully you'll see more of these kind of methanol cartridges for laptops. So as I said, the problem is high temperature. So we have to look at new materials. And one of the new materials we've been looking at is known as perovskite. It has the perovskite structure. So this is the rotating perovskite structure. Um, if you look at it for too long, you get a bit dizzy, actually, I find. Um, um, for those keen followers of solid-state chemistry, we'll know that the oxygens are always in red, and so that's there. Lanthanum's in blue, and the gallium's in yellow. And so this is a lanthanum gallate material, and the reason why it's of interest is that it was discovered a few years back now, it was a very fast oxide ion conductor, but at relatively lower temperatures than the conventional ceramic oxide in the fuel cell. But with any complex material like that, the questions are related to defects and also the path or how do those um, ions move. Here I should note some really nice experimental work that I've been collaborating with, and that's John Kilner at St Andrews and John Kilner, uh, John Irvin at St Andrews and John Kilner at Imperial College. So the way we look at these um, migrations is almost like an energy landscape. This is um, something that Steve I'll get from the group generated off Google Earth, and you can see it's a representation of Bath, a nice hilly Bath. And what it shows is that Bath has a real varied topology of hills and valleys, and that's just like any crystal um, energy landscape as well. And you can see that University of Bath at the top, you can go down that path, you can go down that path there. Um, But ions, just like people, try to follow the path of least resistance. So they tend to follow a path of lowest energy. Um, they haven't got quite the hang of catching the orange bus, so they tend to follow the lowest path. And here, I'll sh- this is a slice through that lanthanum gallate structure. Gallium, oxygen are red again. This is the lanthanum above and below the plane, and that is the oxygen vacancy, which allows the movement of oxygen ions. But the question is, what is the path? It was assumed for many years that it was the, just a straight path. That's the shortest distance. There might be a bit of hindrance from the the ions below and above. So we looked at the energy landscape, and we find that, in fact, it's a curved uh, uh, path. And it was quite nice. So we showed that it curves around, and that is the lowest energy path, and much lower than a straight path. And we did this for a range of different perovskite materials since uh, work uh, in 1995. In fact, some work uh, with Richard Catlow, but what's interesting is that over the years there hasn't been any experimental evidence and I'm not surprised. It's not very easy to see a moving iron within a complex oxide. But what's nice in the last two or three years there are more sophisticated structural techniques which I won't go into. And This is work by Yoshima in Tokyo and there's some work in Berlin as well. And what they've found from their experiments is a curved path. So they've actually confirmed our prediction and this has only happened in the last three to four years. So that was quite a nice result. Staying with fuel cells, I want to move on to a more uh, relatively newer material called apatite. And this allows me to use a terrible pun, apatite for fuel cells. Um, I, wa- I warn you, there's, there's worse to come. Um, so apatites, what are apatites? Well, apatites are naturally occurring minerals. They're a class of minerals. So I've classed this from nature te- te- technology. But also they're bio-inspired. And what I mean by that is that you find a hydroxyapatite in uh, mammalian bone and your teeth enamel. Uh, so this is a skull. And you might recognize those teeth there. Um, it's RPM. I'm not sure if you're, he's smiling so much these days. But I'm not sure if he's bothered. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, why, the reason why I'm interested is that we can develop, they've been developed, 
developments, first of all by a group in Japan and then some increasingly beautiful work by Peter Slater at Surrey, some synthetic appetite silicates. And also I'd like to acknowledge Nora DeLue at UCL who's done some elegant work on these hydroxyapatites, modelling work. So what are the structures? Well, I mentioned right at the beginning that we live in a crystal world and one of the most commonest crystals in minerals and rocks are silicates. And a good example is silica, SiO2, found in sand and quartz. And this is the beautiful structure of silica. These, these are yellow tetrahedra. They're silicon oxygen um, kind of um, shapes. Basically, tetrahedra means four-sided, so the silicon is connected to four oxygens. But what's important here is that those silica tetrahedra are corner-sharing, um, sort of uh, socialist sharing there, that they actually share corners and build up this network. And that network forms this very porous structure. You can see channels down the structure. In contrast, these new appetites, which are shown on the right here, and this is rotating, the, the, the tetrahedra are isolated. And, um, so they're actually isolated tetrahedra. These green ions are lanthanums, and the, the red ions are oxygen. And they form channels. And the best way, as ever, is through a 3D image. Um, what I hope you can see is that the channel of ions coming towards you, so you can see these kind of rows of ions with these isolated silicon oxygen tetrahedra just floating in the structure. Um, I should stress, which I haven't done already, these structures are repeated again in three dimensions to form your wallpaper type motif. So you've got these channels of oxygens. I'd like to thank Alison Jones from the group for generating all the 3D images. Um, so that shows the beautiful structure of appetite. The next one, keep focused on the screen, is also bio-inspired. And I have to say, this is a bit of a, a wake-up call. Uh, nothing to do with fuel cells or... Although I could say that they're kind of biofuel cells. They might be, I don't know. But I showed this for two reasons. One, as I said, to wake you up. But two, if you shake your head about, those kind of antennae just follow you around. It's a bit, it's a bit scary. So, and I'm sure on this big screen it looks even better. I've just seen it on my laptop. So that's a, a millipede, by the way. And if you're interested, there is a, a website called 3dimages.com that does those. So let me get back to appetites. Why, why the interest in these appetites? Well, re about, I'd say, four years ago, there was an exciting discovery. And that exciting discovery is that there's a whole new family of oxide ion conductor. I mentioned Peter Slater's work at Surrey. And what this new family of oxide ion conductor is, is important for is the fact that they, again, work at relatively lower temperatures. But as you saw, they're quite complex materials. In fact, no one has really understood them properly up to, up to this date. So can modelling get some insight in the defect chemistry first and how do those defects or oxide ions move through that complex lattice? So hopefully we try to get some insight. So this is the structure again. Um, sorry to confuse you, but the lanthanums in this case are blue rather than green, but the oxygens as ever are red and the tetrahedra. So the first thing we do is to look at possible defects in the structure, vacancies, uh, interstitials, which are ions in the wrong place. And what we find is that there's this low-energy site for this oxygen interstitial defect. But it's a very, it was a tale of the unexpected. And I had to ask the, the postdoc, Jules, to repeat this work because I didn't want to publish some work that we weren't sure about. But true enough, we did predict that there's this interstitial defect at the edge of the channel, at the periphery of the channel, so there's quite a lot of tetrahedra displacement. So the next thing is, how does that iron move? Can it assist the iron conduction? And yes, it can. It goes through this very unusual snake-like path, this interstitial path. And this is very important because we, we've actually confirmed or predicted that these materials are interstitial conductors, not vacancy, as I showed in that previous perovskite example. And that's important because um, synthesis routes should focus and have focused on synthesizing oxygen interstitial type materials or other defect materials. Um, I've pushed Peter, my collaborator, sorry, to generate a boron oxynitride 
appetite, and that leads to my worst pun of them all, uh, a bon appetite. I thought it would be, be a great paper or grant proposal, surely. But I'm not, I'm not sure if Peter's done it yet. Peter? Not yet. Close. So, let me move. Oh, yes, Craig, my assistant, glamorous assistant, is back on. Allows me to drink some more water. Um, so here, what we're trying to show you is some animation of those auction irons. Again, it's computer-generated. Uh, the pink color, especially for my daughter, Yasmin. And you can see the auction irons going down. But what's key is that solids are not static. You can see those tetrahedra kind of moving out of the way. That graphics we're showing again, just because it was a bit short the first time. But you can see the auction irons and the way the tetrahedra are moving out of the way. And that, those isolated tetrahedra could be key in facilitating that iron conduction. So we think this flexibility of the structure is key for the fast iron conduction for this material. Thanks, Craig. Right, I'm now moving towards uh, the dessert, and this is the lithium battery materials. So, um, again, uh, size matters. And in this case, it's really to do with the whole portable revolution. So these images are familiar to all of you, the camera, mobile phone, laptop, iPod, and even a nano iPod. Uh, but what's driving this portable revolution is that the fact that the lithium-ion batteries have a very high energy densities. In other words, you can make them small and light compared to conventional nickel-cadmium batteries. And again, I want to stress that without fundamental materials chemistry in the 1980s, this is curiosity-driven, you would not have the commercial development by Sony uh, in 1991, and they've sold you know, over a billion cells since then. What does a lithium battery look like on the inside? Um, again, it's a sandwich-like where the bread slices, in this case, are these layered materials. You've got a layered ceramic oxide based on cobalt and graphite. And as you know, graphite is very slippery and it's quite a layered structure. What the layered structure allows is the tiny lithium ions to go in and out, hence rechargeable. And that process is called insertion. So when you're charging your battery, when you've got your phone plugged in, the lithium ions are going that way. And when you're actually using your phone, it's going the other Oh, that didn't quite work there. Oh. Oh, let's see if it works. Oh, it hasn't quite worked this time. Right. Let's see one more go. Oh, it didn't work. It's supposed to turn around and you get the discharge the other way. But basically, the irons can go in and out. And that's kind of like a rocking chair. <laughs> there you are. Who needs a glamorous assistant? So you see, the irons are going that way as you're using your phone. But the key thing is that this is a cobalt oxide. And this is the... I'm going to focus in on that cobalt oxide. So this is the last time you're going to use your specs. And I promise there's no creepy crawlies after this one. You believe that, you believe anything. Um, so this is that layered structure. And I hope you can see that it, this is the cobalt oxide sheets. And in between, you can see the lithium ions coming in. And that's how the lithium ions, basically threads of lithium ions coming in and out through that. And as in much in life, the important stuff is happening between the sheets. And you can see those lithium ions. Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. So, but there is a problem. Cobalt. Cobalt is toxic and relatively expensive. So it's okay for minute amounts in your lithium battery, but if you want to scale them up, there are problems. So that's the next challenge. Can we move on to the next generation materials? And this is driven by the fact that transport accounts for about 30% of CO2 emissions. So there's a big drive for replacing our inefficient combustion engine with um, other vehicles, fuel cell vehicles. One kind of stepping stone, because I don't think you'll get there straight away, is the hybrid electric car, which combines a petrol, with not such a smiley face, and a battery. The current battery is nickel metal hydride, 
which has its own problems in terms of um, cost and weight. So I'm part of this um, EPSRC Supergen consortium. I think Supergen is a very bad acronym for Sustainable Power Generation. And I'm, we're looking at energy storage materials, which are lithium batteries or supercapacitors. This is, you may not believe it, but this is actually the hybrid um, test car up in Strathclyde uh, with the, some of the rest of the consortium, not the whole group. And as you can see, this is a relatively warm day in Glasgow. <laughs> so what are we looking at? We're looking at some new materials, and a very topical material is lithium iron phosphate, which we've been modelling. And this is the structure, quite a beautiful structure. Um, obviously, you don't have to understand the full details. Basically, those yellow octahedra, which have eight sides, are, uh, have iron and six oxygens. And this blue tetrahedra, four sides, is phosphorus and four oxygens. But the important thing is that you have these channels of lithium. In terms of properties, it, ha it shows some very interesting properties. It's non-toxic, we're dominated by iron, it's cheaper, and you can scale it up without uh, uh, the environmental hazards. And already, and this is a very recent, A123, uh, which are based in Boston, I think, have commercialised a battery for power tools, for example, these handheld um, drills. So that was only last year. So there's a lot of development or research, see if you can scale it up to hybrid electric vehicles. A key aspect of these lithium battery materials are their shapes. And I want to bring up the concept of surfaces and shapes. And again, I'd like to note some elegant work on other oxide surfaces uh, by Steve Parker here at Bath and Dean Sale at Cranfield. And we can model these solid surfaces and from which you can actually begin to predict Morphologies. So what I mean by morphologies, this is an example at home, crystals at home. Any idea what that is? That's actually the fur in your kettle magnified about a thousand times. So you can see it's actually quite beautiful when you see it at that scale. You don't actually want to see it at a larger scale. Um, but it's needle-like. But all crystals are not needle-like, as we know. There's different shapes. So can we predict shapes and important structures? So I've called this small but perfectly formed. And this is the lithium battery material I just uh, talked about, lithium-ion phosphate. And this is a calculated or predicted morphology based on surfaces. And the reason why that's important is that that lithium-ion migration has to go through a surface. So you want to maximise that surface normal for the conducting channel. And that's what this surface is. So it's very plate-like. This fuel cell material, this perovskite here, based on lanthanum cobalt, is more hexagonal, so it's much more tabular, and that's from modelling. So there's any experimental evidence. Well, the experimental evidence comes from what are called electron micrographs, from electron microscopy, and this is some nice work, recent work by Tom Richardson at Berkeley, and this is work by Enrico Traversa in Rome. And you can see that our predictions tie up very nicely with experiment. But we can go a bit further, which I won't show here, we can try and understand the actual surfaces on the atomic scale, see what kind of defects there are, whether there's any segregation of um, dopants to the surface. So that's a nice prediction from modelling. But the bit I want to focus in on, this last bit, is something called doping. And it's not this type, uh, but it's more another type. And doping in solids is, again, can be performance-enhancing in a different way. Here you're trying to enhance its solid-state properties. A dopant ion is something that you've actually deliberately added. It's an impurity ion that you've deliberately added. So it replaces an existing lattice. So these green, large green ions have replaced the lattice ions that were there before. And that could improve the properties. Not always, but it can improve the properties. But the question often is, which dopants go in and where do they go? And in this case, I'm going to focus on this question, which dopants actually go in? And it relates to a doping controversy. Nothing to do with the Olympics or the Tour de France, but to do with this material, the lithium battery phosphate, lithium ion phosphate. In the blue corner, uh, Yet Ming Chang at MIT, uh, USA, believed and reported in a quite high-profile journal, Nature Materials, that zirconium and niobium doping improves the electronic conductivity by 10 to the power 8. 
So not a trivial amount, 10 to the power 8. So that's quite a large performance enhancing doping. Whereas in the red corner, uh, JB Goodenough at Texas and others said that no, doping doesn't actually go in, and if it does, it's not very much or doesn't do what it's saying it's doing. Actually, that effect of 10 to the power 8 is from carbon impurities. So we thought, can we shed some light? And I thought, this is one of the last slides, a bit of audience participation. Who's going to vote for the blue corner? <laughs> Nobody. Who's voting for the red corner? Yes, everybody else. And the rest of you are not committed in any way, with, with no strong views. Must be David Cameron's supporters. <laughs> I have to get a anti-Tory comment in. Uh, um, um, so we can look at the energetics of this process. So this is, up on the vertical axis, the calculated energy. And if it's a low energy, the doping is predicted to be likely. If it's a high energy, the doping is predicted to be unlikely, just on energetic grounds. I've slipped in manganese 2+, plus because both camps, both the red and blue corner, agree that manganese does indeed go in. So there's no debate on manganese 2+. Plus. And we calculate, yes, indeed, it's a favourable process. In fact, it's slightly, even slightly exothermic. But the exact values aren't key here. But zirconium iodine, what do we predict? Well, we predict a high energy, a unlikely doping. And for those little Britain watchers, we say the computer says no. <laughs> so, as most of you voted... Um, by single transferable votes, it was the red glove wins, so the red corner wins. So, um, in fact, that paper by Yetming Chang, no one, not many groups have been able to reproduce that data. And privately, I've heard that he's giving up and thrown the towel in, uh, as they say. So, and so the story ends. So, I hope I've shown you, um, I hope you've given you a flavour of the type of research that I'm involved with. But more importantly, I hope I've shown you that uh, computer modelling are powerful tools to look at quite complex crystalline materials on the atomic scale. But a strong theme of our work is the interactions with experimental work. Um, the second aspect I hope I've got across to you is that that fundamental or basic understanding of these properties on the atomic scale is key in actually understanding the uh, clean energy applications or technology on the macro scale. And lastly, I, I should say that obviously modelling, I hope I've shown you some of those computer graphics, that is actually just as creative and beautiful as the arts. There's a lovely quote from my supervisor and mentor and now good friend and colleague Richard Catlow. Uh, the most important applications of these methods are to reveal the contrasting states of order and disorder, but of, above all, the intricacy and beauty, beauty of matter at the atomic level, and I agree with that totally. So this, another conclusion is really what is going to be the energy mix, the future energy mix. I hope I've shown you that as part of that energy mix, there are going to be two, possibly two technologies. One is fuel cells, which you'll hear about, I think, in terms of laptop computers, but hopefully you hear more about them in combined heat and power at homes or backup generators. The second area is lithium-ion batteries that we know about already, but can they be scaled up to hybrid electric vehicles, especially new ones coming onto the market like Lexus and other ones? And I think, um, being, as you can tell, an old lefty, I'm, I tend to be glass half full rather than half empty, so I'm very optimistic about the future and about chemistry. So I feel that chemistry is key to exciting breakthroughs. It can make significant contributions to energy and sustainability. Finally, um, there's some thanks. Uh, the thanks starts off with a photo from my student days. This is the end of my PhD, a uh, first year PhD, 1985. This was a, a lovely summer school in Calabria, Italy, that Richard Catlow and I know very well, organised by Alan Chadwick. Um, I showed this for two reasons. One, to show up some key collaborators. The first one... Sadly, couldn't be with us in true director or producer style. He's off to the States soon. That's Alan Chadwick. And we both share a, a love of uh, materials underpinning fuel cells, MUFC. And uh, um, 
also Truls Norby in Oslo, who's been a good collaborator on iron conductors. Richard there, uh, a rare sight, wearing a T-shirt. And if you haven't spotted me with a bit more hair, it's me at the front. And uh, um, as you can see, it's a grueling meeting. Uh, really, it's a tough one. But the second reason I wanted to show this was really for the younger members of the audience. I, this was the first meeting, international meeting, that I gave a research talk, and I foolishly sat near the back. So, so when my time came up and they called my name, I had to walk all the way down the aisle, and my knees were shaking so much that I wanted to turn around and go out again. So my tip is don't sit near the back if you're giving a research talk at a conference. The second thanks are, I've dubbed Exhibitionists Unite, and this was uh, an exhibition at the Royal Society and, uh, at, the Buck at Buckingham Palace, called Power to the People, the Molecular Revolution in Sustainable Energy. And my comrades were Matt Davidson and Laurie Peter. But what was most gratifying is that we saw loads of children from different uh, backgrounds, um, really enthusiastic about science and chemistry. And some examples here. This is an example actually from uh, when Matt went to, the team went to India, to Mumbai. A very happy catalyst chemist, I think, there. So that was, uh, and my final thanks go to the research team who do all the work. Craig, you've seen, uh, Alison, Steve, Veluth, who have been the ushers, Pete, Emma, and Julia, and also Kathy from Surrey. Um, in terms of funding, uh, EPSRC for their generous support. And lastly, um, the family. And that's really for tolerating all my defects. I have quite a few. And that's Gita, Yasmin, and Zach. And I have to say, uh, Gita has felt a bit like an inaugural widow for the last couple of weeks, as I've been beavering away on this talk most evenings. Um, I'll end with one final slide. This is the final slide. And it's really, um, the inaugural means celebration. And here I want to celebrate the, the younger members of the audience, the younger researchers. And this was from a, a lovely exhibition I went to from one of the greatest scientist, that's Darwin at the Naturistry Museum. And there's a quote by uh, the French writer and philosopher Marcel Proust at this exhibition. And I've used it because, to me, it summarises science in general, but computational chemistry in particular. And the quote is, the real voyage of discovery consists not only in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Um, thank you for coming. And like any celebration... I now need a strong drink. <laughs> Thank you very much.